If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Genesis chapter 1, where we're going to be looking at verses 6 through 8 today. Uh, if you look in your Bible and you think, well, that doesn't seem all that fun, it's because you didn't study it all week, and you haven't heard how cool it is. But let's pray and we'll get into the passage for this morning. Father, we ask this morning just for blessing from you, not that we deserve it, but because you are the great God who delights in blessing unworthy sinners. Father, we thank you for just uh, the music and worship ministries. and We pray for all the music people that they would realize the critical part they play, especially this time of year, in admonishing one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Father, we pray that as we hear from you and your word, as we marvel at your creation, we would leave here glorifying you more because of who you are and what you have done. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we learned that God spoke the light into existence out of nothing, ex nihilo. Uh, This is uh, what happened after he had made all the elements and then he had taken them and formed them into a sphere, which we call the earth, a, a, a ball of matter floating in the deep of space, uh, covered with about two miles deep of wa- in water. And uh, that's uh, pretty much all there was until God made light. He made light shine on all sides of the earth simultaneously, like it will be uh, in the eternal state. We read uh, last week in, in Revelation 21 and 22 how the whole earth will be lit up, but there won't be any sun. It will be like that. And yet God at this time gathers all the light to one side of the earth, so it's shining in one direction. There's still no sun. We don't know where it's coming from, where it's coming from the pre-incarnate Christ or just God spoke it. Uh, But he begins the earth spinning so that the earth begins to experience night and day, Uh, light shining on half the globe at one time. And that's where we left. Of course, it's not very exciting at this point because the earth is just cold, dark, very watery and lifeless. And we might think, well, man, that's That's not very good. Uh, But you have to remember, God is working towards creating a perfect planet to put mankind and many other creatures. It's kind of like complaining against a contractor because the house he's building doesn't look good after he just laid the foundation. So, you know, you have to wait until the whole thing's done before you see how good it really is. But even looking at how God does things, even at the very beginning, is really amazing. Uh, I'm sure this morning you're going to learn some things that you never considered before, and you will leave here with a different perspective than you ever had before. Today, about 75% of the earth's surface is covered with water. That's why my grandfather had a little sign in his fishing tackle uh, closet that said uh, 75% of the earth is covered with water. Therefore, God intended men to spend three-fourths of their time fishing and one quarter working. Today, 97% of the earth's water is found in oceans, but is not fit for drinking. Of the reigning 3% that is fit for drinking, 75% of that water is frozen in the polar ice caps. Water is essential for life. You have to have life, uh, have to have water for life just as you need light for life. The two are very critical. During medieval times, people used about five gallons of water a day and smelled like it. Today, the average person uses about 90 gallons of water a day. Uh, Dishwashers, clothes washers, showers, all those things, we're using water like crazy. Water regulates the earth's temperature. It expands at 9% when frozen. And when frozen, it's able to float on water that isn't frozen. If you have pure water, you can super cool it below freezing. But it won't freeze into a solid unless you shake it. And then it freezes instantly. It's very interesting how you can get a bottle of water and freeze it below freezing. And it's still liquid and you just shake it and it just... Why is that? I have no idea. But it's cool. It's how God made it. Water has a lot of amazing properties, just like light. Humans are made up of about 70% water. God knows 
the importance of water because he designed water and designed water for the purposes that it would function to uh, end in his creation. After the first day of creation, the earth is just a sphere covered in water. It's spinning in space. There's light from one side, so it's experiencing night and day. But then God adds to his creation piece by piece. He is a master builder. And actually, in these first verses of Genesis, there's a lot of building terms to describe how God is constructing the world so that men can live in the world, along with many other incredible creatures. The background, remember, of Genesis 1, I said it's just huge. It's just gigantic. And so I can't give it to you all at once. So we're just kind of tackling a little bit as we go. Each Sunday, we're going to do some more of the Sunday, uh, looking at uh, one of the critical issues, and that is the meaning of the word day in Genesis 1. Uh, whether it refers to a normal day, a 24-hour period, or an unspecified length of time, or millions and billions of years, or normal days with huge gaps of time in between. This is a critical issue because if the word day in Genesis 1 doesn't refer to a literal day, then the Bible is full of errors. The Bible isn't inspired. The authors of Scripture are liars. Jesus is a liar. If, however, the meaning of day in each uh, day of creation means a little 24-hour day, then millions and billions of years becomes impossible to fit into the Bible. The Bible retains its integrity. The authors of Scripture are truthful. Jesus isn't lying. He can save us from our sins. Evolution can't be true. Therefore, it's a watershed issue, this whole meaning of the word day. Stephen Boyd, in his book, Coming to Grips with Genesis, says, quote, Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3 is found is the foundation of theology and is the interface of scripture and scientific interpretation of empirical evidence. The battle for truth has escalated to a full-scale war. The battlefields were where components fight over this interface used to be limited to the arcane world of academic journals and books and conferences, but it is not confined to them any longer. The field of combat has expanded to the forum of popular culture, primetime TV, newspapers, popular magazines, and the courts, end quote. We all know that you can't turn anywhere without hearing millions and billions of years and evolution, evolution, evolution. Boyd goes on to explain that evolutionists and old earth creationists have a very hard time trying to show how millions and billions of years fit into the biblical text. This has led them to a number of assaults on the Bible in order to try to make their view happen. First, they try to attack uh, the um, authority of Scripture by estranging it from science, saying that, you know, the Bible is over here and it's about religion and science is over here about things that are measurable and repeatable and the two fields of study are incompatible. Some, like Galileo, propose that the Bible is to, quote, teach how one goes to heaven, not how heaven goes, end quote. Thus, the first attack on scriptures is the Bible is a good book for religious people who want to have faith in fiction. You know, if you want to invent a God for a crutch, if you want to imagine there is a a heaven and a hell uh, so that it will give you some sort of emotional stability... You know, if you uh, want to believe in God or fairies or gnomes or mermaids or vampires, it doesn't matter. It's all fiction. But if it's good for you, it's good for you. But just be known that the Bible and science are incompatible. They say science is more authoritative than the word of God. That it must be used to judge the word of God and reinterpret the word of God. Thus men like Galileo and Francis Bacon and Immanuel Kant put man's reason above God's. Though these men made their contributions, they were deceived about the Bible. The Bible is God's word. It is authoritative. It is inspired. It is infallible. It is inerrant. And though the Bible is not a science textbook, whenever it speaks to issues of science, it is always right and never wrong. Because the God who created the heavens and the earth and all they contain cannot lie and he cannot err. He's the one who knows. Science must bow the knee before God and his word. 
Other scientists formed anti-supernatural bents. In other words, they said, well, science is about empirical stuff, something you can see and touch and taste and feel and measure and repeat. And therefore, since the Bible deals with supernatural and miracle and spiritual realms, uh, they have nothing to do. Therefore, we should never consider this over here, but we should just believe only in what we can touch. That is, we should live by non-faith. Thus, they will not consider the miracle of creation. They won't consider the supernatural acts of God in creation. For their presupposition is that the supernatural does not exist. That the entire Bible, therefore, is full of myths and lies. And see, this is the huge thing that's going on here. It's a giant worldview shift. One of their attempts to uh, discredit creation account is to say, well, you know, the creation account, yeah, we see it there, but it's really kind of a figurative, fictional, Hebrew, metaphorical poetry. Boyd gives 15 reasons why this can't be true. It's not Hebrew poetry. He gives three main categories of reasons. One, he says, statistically, it's very improbable that Genesis 1 is poetry. Second, the writing is straightforward narrative. And third, when taken at face value, there is only one acceptable interpretation to take it in its plain, simple meaning, that it means days. Now, before we look at the meaning of the word day in Genesis 1, it is certain that and beyond dispute that the word day can mean an indefinite period of time. There's no doubt about that. Nobody's arguing that. Nobody's saying that it always means day. Sure, it can mean an indefinite period of time. Uh, For instance, if you look over at Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, you'll see right there where it's used in a different way. That doesn't mean a literal 24-hour period. Genesis 2, 4, Moses just summarized what God did during the six days of creation. And referring to those days, he then says, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. And so he's just saying, well... It took a whole week. Well, that's right. He's just saying in that day, in that general time period. So it's obvious from this context that it doesn't mean a 24-hour period. You can look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. If you look there, you'll see another example. It speaks of God visiting Adam and Eve. And it says, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Now, in this instance, the word day is talking about the daylight portion. You know, you might say, well, is it nighttime outside or is it day? And say, well, it's day because it's light. So sometimes it refers to day, not, uh, uh, you know, the daylight portion. Brown Drivers Briggs Hebrew Lexicon gives 16 different ways the word day is used. So you might think, well, man, then that's going to be hard to figure out which one should be used in Genesis 1. No, it's not. No, it's not. Remember I said that Boyd said statistically it's very improbable that it's, it refers to something else. Why is that? Because there's 1,000, over 1,900 occurrences of the Hebrew word day, yom, in, in the Old Testament. And 95%, 95% of the usages refer to a literal 24-hour period. Let me ask you this. Let's say you're studying your Bible, you know, you're... You open up some Greek lexicon, Hebrew lexicon, which is a fancy name for a dictionary. And you look in there and you're trying to find the meaning of a word and it gives you 10 different meanings. How do you know what meaning should be the meaning in your text? How are you going to figure? Do you just pick and choose which one you like the best? How do you know? Context. Yes. Okay. Context. That's right. You learn something. Context. That's exactly right. Context gives words meaning. I was teaching at the Burbank uh, Christian Club uh, this week, and I asked them this question: What is what is the word uh, the phrase? What does this phrase mean? You write me a, 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 a ten-page, uh, you know, email. And, uh, and so I just kind of scroll down to page five and I, I just put, you know, look at the, the screen and I just read the phrase and blew me away. What's that? What does that mean? Does that mean there was a terrorist bomb and you were blown away? 
Does that mean that you were in a little raft next to the lake and a strong wind pushed you out into the lake and you were blown away? Does that mean that something happened and it was so amazing it blew you away emotionally? You see, the context is what gives words their meaning, not the lexicon, not the dictionary. The lexicon sometimes will say, in this passage, it means this. But they're just looking at the context, the very thing you do, and sometimes they're wrong. The lexicon gives you the range of possible meanings, but it doesn't tell you what meaning's the right meaning. You have to look at the context. Think of all the slang words people use which depart from the normal meaning of a word. If you're a little bit older, things used to be groovy. Gnarly, if you're a surfer. Cheery. Boss. Choice. Today you hear people say, sweet and cool. Hot, wicked, righteous. I mean, think about that. You've got hot and cold, wicked and righteous. All those words are synonyms for I really like it in certain contexts. Do you see that? So you have to be very careful when you're looking at words that you just don't say, well, I looked it up in the dictionary and it said this. Well, look up hot in the dictionary and you'll probably not find I really like it. Or wicked, I really like it. Righteous, I really like it. See, those words aren't there. But in certain contexts, we understand now, oh yeah, they really like it. Man, that is righteous. Totally different meaning. So what about the word day in the context of Genesis 1? What does it mean when used in the context that it appears in the first chapter of the Bible? This is what it means. It means a literal day, a 24-hour period. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, let me give you seven reasons. One, the days of creation are consecutive and sequential. One day after another. This argues strongly for 24-hour days happening one after another. No, you can't justify sticking millions and billions of years in between the days. There is no reason in the text and or Hebrew language to do that. Secondly, the days of creation are given a number. And when days are given a number, such as the first day, second day, third day, they always refer to a literal 24-hour day. Third, the days of creation are also defined by, and there was evening and morning. One rotation of the earth upon its axis, which takes 24 hours. Both of those things are used. And it's plain, simple meaning of the text when you read it, if you didn't know anything about evolution, is it means a day. And historically, the Jews, you know, it's their book understood it to mean a 24-hour day. And six, it's how the Holy Spirit and the authors of Scripture understood it, which should be like the end of the deal. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 11, for instance, Moses is giving the fourth commandment to rest on the Sabbath or the seventh day. And he says this, for in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So the whole point is, is he says, listen, uh, you can work six days and then rest one. It's like creation. I want you to do it like creation. When God worked six days creating and then stopped. Now imagine how long our week would be. If each of those days was millions of years. It just doesn't work. Seven. If we doubt the literal days of creation in Genesis 1. That they are literal, sequential, 24-hour days, even though the text is as clear as the Hebrew language can make it. What are we going to do with the rest of Genesis and the Bible? Jesus spoke of Adam and Eve as real people and as the first married couple in Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 through 6. Was he lying? Jesus spoke of Abel as a literal person in Luke chapter 11, verses 50 and 51. Was Jesus lying? Jesus spoke of Noah and the flood as literal events in Matthew 24, verses 38 to 39. 
Was he lying? He spoke of Lot and his wife as literal people in Luke 17, verses 28 to 32. Was he lying? He spoke of the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah and literal events as literal events in Matthew chapter 10, verse 15. Was he lying? You reject the literalness of the days of creation. You open the floodgates to deny every other miracle and every other plain text in the Bible. You basically strike a death knell to biblical authority. That is really what's at stake here. You make Jesus to be a liar, the Bible to be a book of myths. God, believe me, used every mechanism he could to let us know these were basic, literal, sequential, consecutive, 24-hour days, as the plain reading of the text makes it. Such scholars such as Gerhard von Rad said, quote, the seven days are unquestionably to be understood as actual days. Gordon Wenham said, quote, there can be little doubt that there that here day has its basic sense of a 24 hour period, end quote. Victor Hamilton said, quote, whoever wrote Genesis one believed he was talking about literal days, end quote. John Stack notes, quote, surely there is no sign or hint within the narrative itself that the author thought his days to be a regular designations. His language is plain and simple and he speaks in plain and simple terms, end quote. All right, that's just a little bit more background. Let's get into the text. Look in your Bibles at Genesis chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 6 through 8. Remember, God's got the raw materials. He's fashioned them into a sphere. They're covered with a couple miles of water. He's got light shining from one direction. The earth is spinning on its axis and the black deep of space. And then we read this in verses 6 through 8 of chapter 1. Then God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. And let it separate the waters from the waters. Then, then God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening. And there was morning a second day. We have two creative acts in the text before us. First, God creates the atmosphere, which in the New American Standard is called the expanse. Uh, Yours may have firmament. Um, And the second thing is he separates the waters uh, above and below, which relate to the atmosphere as we shall see. So let's just look at how God is now forming the earth so that we can live here. To turn it into really a paradise. First, God creates the atmospheric heavens. Look at verse 6. It says, then God said, and that's of course the way God makes everything. He just speaks it out of, speaks it into existence, ex nihilo, our little Latin phrase, out of nothing. Just as Paul speaks of God in Romans 4, 17, as the God who calls into being that which does not exist. And so God spoke and said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the water. So there is waters and he's saying, I want there to be expanse in the midst of the waters. The word expanse might also be translated firmament. And uh, if uh, if you, you know think back to last week or last month or even last year, you might not have ever used that word. It's not a very common word. We usually don't use the word firmament. But if you were to look it up in an English dictionary, it just means the sky. It it can also be translated uh, as far as the Hebrew word, vault or better expanse or canopy. It can refer to metal that is beaten out or a hard overhead, a vaulted ceiling or something like that. It's something over overhead that is kind of a a hard thing, which is kind of odd. Uh, In most cases, it's used that way. Uh, If you look down in verse 20, we can see what expanse he's talking about, uh, where God said, and let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures and let the birds fly above the earth in the open. Here's our word, expanse of the heavens. So we know from the near context here that this word is speaking of an expanse that is the airy portion, the gases that make up our atmosphere. 
The word is also used in verses 14 and 17 to speak of the expanse of outer space, the canopy of space where God places the sun, the moon, the stars, and the planet. But in our text, it refers to the atmosphere. Look at the middle of verse 6. And let it separate the waters from the waters. The word separate is a word which is used all the way through chapter 1. It appears in verse 4, 6, 7, 14, and 18. It means to partition, separate, divide. The verb tells us that God is is causing himself to do this. God made himself divide the waters. Now, I don't know about you, uh, but as God divides the waters, he sticks the atmosphere in the expanse in there, the firmament in there. Uh, usually we think of the firmament as kind of a, a nothing, right? I mean, if you step out of a plane, what happens? Down. You know, uh, you start plummeting to earth. So usually we don't think of the atmosphere as anything firm. We think of it as kind of very infirm and, and airy and, and void. Yet after, uh, actually, air is uh, made up of gases, gases that have weight, they have a mass, and they actually hold up things that weigh a lot. The Earth's atmosphere is amazing, like all the things God creates. It was engineered and designed to fulfill God's purposes both before and after the flood. To actually change between those times. It's fearfully and wonderfully made, though we usually take it for granted. I was thinking about this, and I thought after studying this, I was so amazed at the atmosphere. I thought, you know, Lord, I have never thanked you for the atmosphere. As you breathe it in every moment. You know, if the atmosphere were to vanish, we would be subject to the total vacuum of space. Since water boils at a lower temperature, as there's less atmospheric pressure, if the atmosphere were to dissipate and we were exposed to the vacuum of space, it would cause the water in the cells of our skin to instantly boil and turn into vapor and our skin would collapse. You wouldn't be able to breathe And after six seconds, your heart, lungs, and circulatory system would begin to shut down. Your blood would boil, causing convulsions after 15 seconds, mental confusion, and then after 20 seconds more, unconsciousness. But about 80 seconds later, you would be dead as a doornail and well on your way to being freeze-dried. Thank God for the atmosphere. The atmosphere is made up of various gases, about 78% nitrogen and 21% oxygen, 1% argon, and then a bunch of trace gases. These gases are seemingly weightless, but they do have weight. In fact, uh, they surround, the reason they don't dissipate into the vacuum of space is because they have weight, they have mass. And are attracted to the earth by the gravity of the earth. So the gravity of the earth is what actually latches onto the molecular weight of the gases and holds them to the earth. It's amazing. When verse 6 says, and let it, that is the expanse of the earth's atmosphere, separate the waters from the waters. And what does this tell us? It tells us that God made the atmosphere... And placed all of these gases in between two layers of water. What God is doing is he's creating an environment, a perfect environment for life to exist. We need to keep in mind that the atmosphere we have today is different than the atmosphere before the flood. But God knew the flood would happen. And so God planned to have an atmosphere one way, have it change so it would function after the flood. So let's talk about the significance of our atmosphere today first, and then we'll move on to talk about the atmosphere before the flood. The atmosphere around the earth has been divided up into layers, uh, each kind of increasing elevation. The lowest being the troposphere where the birds and planes fly. The next level is the stratosphere where, you know, weather balloons can ascend. Uh, The mesosphere is where uh, meteorites burn up as they enter into that portion of the atmosphere. Now think about that. Meteorites are rocks. Have you ever seen a rock burn up? I mean, you know, you can have a campfire and have rocks next to it and they never burn. You can put rocks in fires and they never burn. But get this. 
When rocks enter the atmosphere, the friction from the gas causes them to burn up. That, uh, that tells you that it's just not all emptiness. You go fast enough, you start heating up. We've seen this with the space shuttle. As it enters in, the whole bottom glows. So then you have the thermosphere where the, the lower regions, in the lower regions you see the northern lights. That's where the northern lights appear. If you go north or even south, uh, at certain times of the year you see those incredible green lights that appear, green and yellow lights um, from interactions in the atmosphere. That happens in the thermosphere. Also, you have the exosphere where uh, uh, satellites orbit. Oh, also in the thermosphere is where the space shuttle flies. So it flies in the thermosphere right below the exosphere. And so uh, the exosphere is kind of the, the, the tallest shell there where we kind of make the satellites go around. The atmosphere absorbs harmful radiation from the sun and it traps heat so that the planet doesn't freeze. It, distrib- it distributes heat so the temperatures of the earth are even more stable. The atmosphere protects us from being struck by meteorites. Imagine what would happen if, if a rock the size of a softball hit the roof of your house at terminal velocity of about 700 miles an hour. It'd go through your roof. It'd go through your ceiling. It'd go through you. It'd go through your floor and then stop. Praise God for the atmosphere. You know, there are a lot of really nasty rays out there that are emitted by the sun. But God has designed the atmosphere to filter most of them out. So only the good stuff gets through. So we can live. Imagine that. That is amazing. Every day, about 19,000 meteorites, golf ball size or larger enter the atmosphere every day aren't you glad those burn up they don't hit our cars and houses and buildings and places of work praise god for the atmosphere it collects it it holds it distributes water all over the earth in forms of humidity and mist and rain and fog and snow i read that that a large thundercloud may hold as much as get this 150,000 tons of water. One thundercloud. I I got out my calculator and figured that to be 300 million pounds of water. Or 36 million gallons of water. Suspended in the air over your head. And it's suspended in the form of raindrops and ice crystals. The water would be enough to fill a pond a mile long and 300 feet wide and a little over five feet deep. Think about how much water right now is suspended in the atmosphere in the form of clouds. Just billions of gallons of water hanging up there. The atmosphere in our world today is amazing. But I'm telling you, the atmosphere before the flood was really amazing. Let's talk about that. Secondly, God separates the waters below from the waters above. Look at verse 7. God made the expanse, the atmosphere, and separated the waters which were below the expanse, below the atmosphere, from the waters which were above the expanse, above the atmosphere. And it was so. What Moses is describing here, that God would create all these gases and he would have waters below. Those would be the streams, the lakes, the, the ponds, the rivers, and uh, the, even the subterranean water. Waters below. Then, on top of the atmosphere, he would put other waters. Not clouds, but waters above the atmosphere. Think about that. Above that airy expanse of gases that we call our atmosphere, sandwiched between there were waters and waters with atmosphere in between. between. You say, well, how does that work? Well, I don't know. I wasn't there. But very possibly, it was very dense water vapor. Very dense water vapor. 
It would have to be water vapor and not clouds or fog because clouds and fog are made of water droplets and they become opaque and would shut off the earth's light. Vapor is transparent. The light can come through that just fine. The early atmosphere most likely held a thick transparent water vapor just around the whole sphere of the earth. Look at this. Look at Genesis chapter 7 verse 11 at the flood. And notice what it says, what happened when the waters came. This is Genesis chapter 11 verse 7. We're told what happened at the flood. The text says, in the 600 year of Noah's life, in the second month, in the seventh day of the month, on the same day, all the fountains of the great deep burst open, the floodgates of the sky were open. You're thinking, well, that's interesting. The floodgates of the sky were open? The New American Standard has floodgates. Uh, some, some versions have windows of heaven, which is kind of what it is literally. The same term is used in Genesis chapter 8, verse 2. If you look there, it says... Also, the fountains of the deep and the floodgates of the sky were closed and the rain from the sky was restrained. So they were open and they were closed. Remember, before the flood, it didn't rain. According to Genesis chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, if you turn there, Genesis 2, verses 5 and 6. Now, no shrub of the field was yet in the earth and no plant of the field had ever sprouted for the Lord God had not yet set rain upon the earth and there was no man to cultivate the ground. But a mist or we'll learn a flood used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. There are there were no clouds before the flood for there was no rain. The phrase the floodgates of the sky or literally, the windows of heaven describes a, a window in a wall that was used for a chimney. Back there, chimneys weren't invented. So if you had a house or some sort of enclosure and you wanted to light a fire to keep warm inside the structure, you had to make a hole. Windows didn't have glass then either, so it would kind of get sooty on the ceiling and leak out through the window. Doesn't sound very fun, especially if you're tall and your ceiling's short. Anyways, that's what it means. It means chimney, doorway, or a gate that allows something to pass through. Thus, at the flood, God says, what I did, or through Moses, what happened is there, the gates of heaven were open. I believe at that time, the canopy, this thick vapor canopy, God condensed it, and it sent down upon the earth torrential rainfall. That we can't be dogmatic about the waters above the firmament and all their exact properties. If what I've explained is true, it would explain many things. And it fits perfectly with a lot of data that we have. First, if there was a vapor canopy, it would cause a greater greenhouse effect over all the earth. In other words, there would be all this water in vapor around the earth. So when the sun would shine through it, it would heat up and it would circulate and it would keep the earth pretty much the same temperature, like a big greenhouse. Uh, of course, if this was true, then you would expect to find, you know, lush green forests everywhere, even in Arctic regions. You would expect, you know, to find the North and South Poles and uh, the land masses there full of trees and things, ferns and lush stuff, plants. Seth Borenstein, AP science writer in Washington, wrote Wednesday, May 31st, 2006, these words. Scientists have found what might have been the ideal ancient vacation hotspot with a 74 degree Fahrenheit average temperature, alligator ancestors, and palm trees. It's smack in the middle of the Arctic. He goes on to say the North Pole was practically a subtropical paradise. Three new studies show. He quotes Yale geology professor Mark Pagani, who said, quote, imagine a world where there are dense sequoia trees and cypress trees like in Florida that ring the Arctic Ocean. Bornstein goes on to say scientists, uh, quote, scientists already knew this thermal event happened, but are not sure what caused it, end quote. Hmm. Makes you wonder, doesn't it? Pagani says, quote, new research found the polar average was closer to 74 degrees. So instead of a Boston-like weather year-round, the Arctic was more like Miami, end quote. 
in a paper submitted to the Arctic Institute of North America, Jane Francis wrote, these aren't Christians, by the way, quote, petrified and mummified remains of fossil forests are preserved within sediments, sediments, that's mud laid down by water, sediments in the Canadian high Arctic and represent some of the most northerly fossil forests ever recorded. The remains of fossil trees represent a paradoxical contrast to the treeless Arctic landscape of today where low temperatures prohibit the growth of anything but small bushes. The Middle Eocene climate, which is the Eocene's a name they use to describe there, it doesn't matter, was obviously much warmer than today to allow such large trees to grow. These forests grew at very high paleo altitudes as high as 78 degrees north, end quote. Now, you may be thinking, so, so what's that? I'm, I'm kind of not caught up on my paleo altitudes. Well, as you go up, right, the equator Zuri, and you start going up in, in latitude um, till you get to the North Pole, which is 90. We're talking 12 degrees away from the North Pole in the highest known Land masses, you find giant forests of petrified trees. What does that tell you? 78 degrees north, that's above Greenland, which is not green, it's white. Keep in mind that the North Pole is at 90. So we're talking about forests that are all the way at the, towards the very top. The trees find, they find there have large growth rings, meaning they had ideal growing conditions. And many of the stumps have a diameter of 15 feet. They were big trees. They don't know how they grew up there, how they could grow there. Why? Because they ruled out the Bible as a book of fiction, and therefore make many wrong guesses and assumptions. The articles are humorous because they make all these observations that fit perfectly with what the Bible says. They go, you know, we aren't quite sure. It could have been this and could have been that. Maybe the earth like changed its axis and, you know. We know what happened. The entire earth was thickly forested, a tropical paradise full of lush green trees. It had an atmosphere that was just gorgeous and there was waters above and waters below, there was virtually no wind, no rain. At that time, it was just gorgeous, wonderful, lush forests, ferns, trees, animals, bugs, insects. The article entitled Greenland was Forest Green, July 6, 2007, noted, quote, Greenland once had boreal forests like those in Sweden, reported Science Daily. Researchers analyzed the mud under two kilometers of ice. Two kilometers is thick, 6,500 feet of ice. In other words, you go down 6,500 feet into the ground, over a mile down uh, through the ice, and you finally get to the soil. And what do you find there? Well, what you find there is they found DNA from yew trees, alder trees, pine, grain, butterflies, moss, flies, beetles. And according to the article, the research is painting a picture which is overturning all previous assumptions about the biological life and climate of Greenland, end quote. Well, of course, because the Bible's true. That's why all that vegetation is where all those gigantic coal deposits come from. Get this. There are so much coal in the world. It just staggers the imagination. Now, follow me. In order to make a cubic foot of coal, that's 12 inches by 12 inches by 12 inches, a cube of coal, it takes 10 cubic feet of vegetation. There's an estimated... 930 billion tons of coal in the world. And we use it to fire plants and do all things like the, the, the power plants and Burbank coal. Where did all that vegetation come from that is formed when waters wash vegetation away and bury it under sediment? Have you ever filled up your car with gas? Where do you think the gas comes from? How did all that plant and animal material get buried under the ground, under sediment? We know. They have no idea. They don't even want to talk about it. 
Because they have no idea. They are just like, what? All, did all the plants get together and say, okay, we're all going to commit Harry Carry. And we're all going to dig a huge trench. We're all going to jump into it and um, hope the wind covers us up so that later on they can find some oil under here. No. It happened at the flood, the Noatian flood. A vapor canopy over the earth would explain why there are tropical forests under the polar caps and why there is so much vegetation buried under sedimentary rock laid down by water all over the earth. It explained the oil deposits and the coal deposits. Not only that, but if the vapor canopy existed, the harmful rays of the sun would be greatly diminished and therefore people would live longer, just like the Bible says they did before the flood. Why? Because you wouldn't have all the harmful rays that are coming through. Most of them are still filtered out by the atmosphere. But then if you had a thick water vapor canopy, virtually none would get through. Not only that, but if the vapor canopy was there, it would have filtered out most of all the carbon-14. And if you want to find the details of what I'm going to tell you right now, you can get online, you can look at the creation versus evolution series and look at the age of the earth lesson, listen to it, and you'll figure it out. But basically it's this. Carbon-14 is formed when certain rays from the sun collide with certain things in the atmosphere and it creates carbon-14. Carbon-14 is uh, it has a decay life. That is, it's kind of an unstable isotope and it begins to decay over time. It's kind of like little batteries that run out of energy and they kind of just flake out after time. So if you can measure the little battery and say, oh, look at it, it's at half strength. And we know that it takes 10 years to wear out a battery and it's at half strength. We know it's five years old. That's kind of how to the principle it works. Now, if there was a thick vapor canopy over the earth before the flood, this is what we would expect. We would expect to find carbon-14 in things. Why? Because carbon-14 is absorbed by plants. And animals eat plants and animals eat animals that eat plants. So everything living gets, ends up getting carbon-14 in it. And then when they die, because they quit absorbing it, it begins to decay. So when they take a sample of organic matter and then they toast it, um, you know, they just char it and then they measure the carbon-14, what they're looking for is to, first, they assume how much was in it at the beginning, though they don't know. They assume it. And then they say, well, now there's this much, therefore it must be this age. Well, if none was getting through the atmosphere, what we would expect is pretty accurate readings up to about 4,000 years. And then before the flood, there would be virtually no carbon-14, which would give huge false readings that things were millions of billions of years old. When in fact, it would not be. The vapor canopy would filter that out. There are other fascinating possibilities to consider. Right now, our atmosphere contains about 21% oxygen. A, a thick vapor canopy would cause a greenhouse effect over the entire earth. All that lush forest would grow everywhere. And what do plants produce? Oxygen. Lots of oxygen. So what's interesting is all those plants would produce lots of oxygen and would increase the oxygen content of the atmosphere. The problem is you increase the oxygen content too much and what happens? You get oxygen toxicity. The problem is, is what are you going to do if you have all those plants and, you know, how do people survive with all the oxygen without getting oxygen toxicity? Well, if you had the vapor canopy, it would also increase the atmospheric pressure. And if you increase atmospheric pressure, you can handle more oxygen without getting oxygen toxicity. That is why today they treat certain illnesses in what is called a, a, a barometric chamber. They take people who are sick and they stick them inside of a chamber, close it off, increase the pressure, and then pump in more oxygen and it fixes them. It speeds healing. In an article Discovery, uh, in an article in Discovery Magazine, February 1988, researchers took some petrified amber or tree sap that had air bubbles locked into it. They then very carefully extracted the ancient air bubbles and ran them through a mass spectrometer to see how much oxygen was in the, the petrified amber and discovered that the atmosphere at that time contained 42% oxygen. That's twice as much oxygen that's in our atmosphere today. And this then, if you had the vapor canopy, would increase the atmospheric pressure, which allowed creatures to exist under higher contents. It would explain why 
dinosaurs, which puzzled them. How can you have such a huge creature and how can they function off such limited lung capacity? Well, they can do it if there's twice as much oxygen. If you had twice as much oxygen and there was more pressure, you could pretty much run indefinitely and not get tired. You would heal quicker. You would have more energy, more mental alertness. You'd probably use more like 100% of your brain than the 5 or 10% we use or whatever it is. As a matter of fact, oxygen, snorting oxygen, is becoming more and more popular. They think it's actually going to be the next kind of bottled water phase. They're actually taking oxygen now. They put a little flavor in it. So when you breathe in, they have this little bottle. It's a can, a very hard can. You put it in your mouth. You press the button. You breathe it in. It distributes oxygen. You take a few hits. It gives you a shot of energy. It increases mental alertness. It's 60 to $70 a bottle. And more and more people are buying it all the time. Higher oxygen levels in the pre-flood atmosphere would speed healing, allow people and animals to live longer, grow bigger. It would explain why plants and animals before the flood of the same kind we have today are so much bigger. Why? Because you have a perfect environment, no wind, no harmful rays, and a lot more oxygen. But then after the flood, you don't have as much oxygen. You have more harmful rays. You're smaller, live less. Your longevity is decreased. It would explain how dinosaurs could survive with small lung capacity before and then afterwards how they would go extinct. Thus God separated the waters above and below and in between them put the expanse, the firmament, our atmosphere. Genesis 1.8 then tells us God called the expanse heaven and there was evening and there was morning. A second day. Is that cool or what? Pray with me. Father, we just thank you so much that you are an amazing God. Amazing. Your creation is amazing. It is so perfectly designed, so amazingly engineered. Forgive us for taking our atmosphere for granted. For just being ungrateful people. Never thinking that if it wasn't for the atmosphere, all those harmful rays would come in and burn us up, that we would, our blood would boil, that we would be pelted with meteorites and so many other bad things, and yet you've protected us. You made it incredibly wonderful before the fall or flood, and after the flood, you still made it sufficient for us to live today. We are in amazement at how great you are, how you have made your heavens and the earth. Father, we pray that we would leave here today thankful, grateful, praising you for things which maybe before we never praised you for. And may we do that for your glory, that you might be blessed and honored. In Christ's name, amen.